0: Blog Talk Radio. The Sunbury Press Book Show on the Books Speak Network. The show is sponsored by Sunbury Press, the publisher of paperback ebooks and hardcover books in a variety of categories, distributed worldwide and sold wherever books are available. I'm your host, Lawrence Noor, and today we have Marlon Bressy, the author of two books with us: Pennsylvania Oddities and Hairy Men in Caves. We'll talk about both of those today, Uh, but first we're going to start with Pennsylvania Oddities, a little bit about Marlon and the book. Researcher and author Marlon Bressy has compiled a panoply of unsolved mysteries and unusual happenings throughout the history of the Keystone State. From unsolved mysteries, headless corpses, missing persons to ghosts and missing treasure, Bressy's compilation is sure to entertain. Pleased to have with us the very entertaining and exciting and expert on headless corse corpses in the Keystone State, Marlon Bressy. How are you today, Marlon?
1: I am good. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Some very interesting content that you have here. Maybe you can share with us a little bit about yourself and your interest in Pennsylvania oddities.
1: I definitely, um, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, local history, especially the darker side of Pennsylvania history. And bookstores are always full of uh, ghost stories. And I find a lot of these books always have the same old stories, you know, the same typical garden variety ghosts, uh, everything from, from Gettysburg to to all the other popular hauntings. And I noticed there wasn't a lot written about other ghastly and gruesome uh facets of Pennsylvania history, such as unsolved murders. And um, so I, I like to combine a little bit of everything, everything from unsolved mysteries to lost treasure. And of course, some some haunted places as well.
0: Yeah, it looks like you have 27 such things mentioned in this book and maybe a few more if you count the newspaper clippings. That So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I note, too, a lot of these tend to be more so from the early 20th century did you get these just by combing through old newspapers? Where did you get your ideas?
1: Well, mostly through old newspapers, but um, um, a lot of it is from just uh, verbal stories that I've heard Um, growing up in certain small towns. There's always um, local mysteries Mm -hmm. and and things of, of that nature that I've always wanted to research and see if there's Kernel of truth in any of those stories. So a lot of the things that I've come up with were based on urban legends that you know I, I delved into and wanted to see if there was any truth behind the rumors.
0: So where where did you grow up? What area would have uh, had
1: some of those I legends? What they call the uh, the the coal region of Pennsylvania. So that would be um, in the whole uh, Mount Carmel, Shamokin um, area. I grew up in mine I went to high school at Mount Carmel. And that area is um, pretty economically depressed, but there's certainly a wealth of legend and lore that goes along with it. So, growing up from an early age, I've always heard a lot of these stories, and and as I got older, I wanted to see if they were true or if they were just myths, and um, and that's uh, where it came from.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, a quick story about Sunbury Press back when I was starting the company. I was doing a book. It was really a self-publishing operation at that time. And I was doing a book about my Knorr family history. And quite a bit of that's in the Mahantonga Valley, which isn't too far from Shimokan and from Sunbury. Yep. And I was, you know, I have a lot of experience driving up through that area and up through Shimokan and I always liked the, uh, just the, the way the town's laid out on the hill and very picturesque, although very depressed. And mm-hmm. when, uh, when it came time to name the company I was thinking, Well, I want to name it after a town near the area where these people were living and I saw on the map Shimokin and Sunbury and uh, I thought Shimokan Press, Sunbury Press. And Sunbury Press just sounded so much better.
1: <laughs> not that Sunbury <laughs>
0: I mean, Sunbury also a pretty depressed town as well. But the name uh just sounded better and so I apologize for not choosing your hometown to name the the press, but
1: <laughs> no, <that's laughs> anyway, <fine. laughs>
0: I see. Uh, I see you do have Coltman in in the book, at least chapter seven, the murders of 1939. Say that a few times. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you know about that? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, since that was close to to your home. And...
1: Well, I grew up in Coltmont and um, I was raised by my my grandparents pretty much. Both of my parents worked long hours. My grandparents lived across the street. Uh, my grandfather was a first uh, generation. American. He came over from, or his his parents came over from Italy, and he worked in the coal mines and he served in World War II. And growing up, he always would tell me about all these stories about what life was like back in the the 20s and the 30s. And in most, a lot of my stories go back to that time period, and that there was just something about that era that really fascinated me. Um, As you're aware, in that area, uh, everybody's. Descended from immigrants, a lot of Italians, Irish, Lithuanians, and and um, and back in the in the twenties and thirties, it was quite a popular hot spot for you know gang warfare. There were uh, shootings on the street and and stabbings, and and if you drive through that town today, it's a very small, quiet, peaceful place with one traffic light, and it's really amazing to think that you know less than a century ago there were. There were shootouts, so um, the stories of 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 the mob that always fascinated me. And I
0: see. Also, the following chapter, Shamokin's famous missing head. This sounds like an urban legend that would have been going around as yeah, uh, as you were a kid, maybe riding your bike through town, and the kids talking about, "Let's go find that missing head."
1: Yeah, I heard about that from a very early age, and of course, I asked my dad about it, and he said, no, there, there really was a, a missing head, and he didn't know many of the details, and I asked my, my grandfather, and he provided me some information, but you know, it wasn't until years later with you know, the advent of the internet, and it made the research so much easier, and when I finally got around to researching it, it was quite fascinating that that wasn't an urban legend at all but it was it actually happened
0: yeah i i was really uh intrigued by the sense of history in your book a lot of these stories being you know from the early 20th century and realizing how different those times were than now the people who could just change their identities or uh you know you, you really to, to trace them, you had to physically find them or find physical traces of them, whereas today we're, we're hunting them down on the internet or through their their phone interactions or some kind of digital footprint. And you know, kind of mm-hmm. like how you track them down you know, for your book, but um, you know maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about one of these stories where somebody's of uh, questionable identity or is changing identity.
1: Well, what makes research difficult is back in those days, records aren't nearly as thorough as what they are now. So even if you knew the name of somebody, chances are they came from somewhere in Europe where the spelling may have been different. So it takes hours and hours of research just to to hone in on the right person, just because some of the names were, you know, a lot of the, the, like the Polish names, for instance, are, you know, their last names are twenty letters long and it's all a bunch of consonants, not a lot of vowels, so it really makes spelling the right name difficult. So research is, is is very difficult. But even back then, even the most obscure person, whether you're working down in a mine or working on a railroad, it's amazing that all those years you you've still left a digital footprint that can still be found today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've also always found it amazing how people could change their identity back then just by saying they're somebody else, maybe forging a piece of paper. Yeah. You, you hear stories of the Johnstown flood, you know, long before many of the things in your book, but go back to the late 1800s and a lot of those people that were missing and never found actually just left town, changed their name and started a new life for whatever reason they were unhappy. And, um, but Mm -hmm. you have some of that in history too. Um, there's a there's a mystery in here actually it's the one that leads off the book and it's uh, going to be marketed to in an advertisement locally here at the Cumberland Valley High School's musical which gets quite a few people through the um, the auditorium and you have a full page ad for your book in that this year and it mentions the Lamb's Gap murder mystery because the Lamb's Gap is very close to Cumberland Valley High School. I don't know if you're familiar with the Cumberland Valley, but I thought I'd pique the interest of uh, some of the people in our local community here, since your book touches on that, and that Lambs Gap murder mystery. I don't know, what can you tell us about that? That was back in the late 20s, was it not? Uh,
1: Yes, it was, and it was a, well, it's an unsolved mystery to this day. Nobody knows who killed these individuals, but it, um, the, evidence seems to suggest that this poor, unfortunate couple stumbled into a an area heavily populated by moonshiners. And this was during the era of prohibition. And I think they may have gotten a little too close to some illegal activity and they may have been um silenced so as to not inform the authorities. And it's a, a road that I drove by <clears throat> A lot, actually. Um, on my way to my, my day job, sometimes I take Lambs Road over up the mountain, and at the crest of the mountain where there's a pull-off is where the murders happened. And I have, on occasion, parked my car, got out and walked around just to get a sense of what these, these individuals, this young couple who were gunned down, um, I just wanted to explore the environment and, and see what it was like. And when you actually read about a story, it's one thing, but when you're standing there on the same ground where something happened, it's a very profound experience.
0: Yeah, I'm very familiar with that land gap road that goes up over the mountain. And for a long time, it was just a dirt road. And even today, it's still not much more than a one lane rough paved road. And if I'm not mistaken, the spot is like a pull-off at the very crest of the hill. I'm thinking that little parking lot type area there, that op- that opening in the woods. Is that where the murders occurred or where the bodies were found?
1: Yes, where the pull-off is now, and there was actually one of, I forget which newspaper it was, but it was a local Harrisburg newspaper who was covering the murder, and they actually published a map in the newspaper with an X marking a spot of exactly where that car was and the position of the bodies. And it was very, it's amazing how how graphic the newspapers were back then compared to how they are now. So it it was chock full of information that you can, you know, piece together where this incident happened. And um, yeah, where that pull off is on the top of the mountain, that's where their car was found. These two individuals, uh, his name was Harry and his, his girlfriend, they were found dead inside the car dead from uh, one bullet apparently so it was definitely somebody who knew how to shoot a a rifle Uh, somebody with some sort of marksman training or an incredibly lucky shot both bodies were found dead from one bullet slumped over the steering wheel of the car and um, to this day nobody knows who did it
0: this sounds like a grassy knoll type story are you telling me there was one bullet that struck both or
1: each had a bullet No. Well, both individuals died from a single single shot shot. fired from, I believe it was 250 yards away. It was an incredibly far distance. Now, of course, forensic science in the 1920s is a little different than it is today, uh, but that was the story that was published.
0: Yeah, Use your imagination. How could one bullet... Kill two people—they must have been pretty close—and we'll leave that to your imagination.
1: <laughs> the, That's uh, one of the reasons I want to—I wanted to see the site with my own eyes because I just wanted to see how that was possible. So,
0: yeah, there's a another story. Actually, they're all very interesting stories. Uh, many of them entertaining in uh, dark ways. Some are almost like unbelievably stupid stories. Like you can't believe somebody. Somebody did mm-hmm. that, and probably the stupidest person in the book is someone who shares my last surname, Nor, who apparently had some kind of dispute, was pulled into a dispute between two wealthy gentlemen and was hired or threatened to uh, blow up that neighbor's porch. Could you tell us a little bit about Mr. Nor and what he was up to?
1: Um, yeah, there um unfortunately I don't have a copy of my book with me so I can't look it up but I I recall that happened in Bloomsburg I believe I think um, it was
0: in the coal regions
1: yeah yeah um, I remember the man's name was Clifton Clifton Moore but I honestly I mean to be honest there are so many stories in that book I, I do not know the details of that particular one
0: well, that's the one that stood out for me, and we'll we'll spare you any more uh questions on that one uh, there's a couple others that and we, we can just tell our audience to you know get the book and read it and We are talking to Marlon Bressy, the author of Pennsylvania Oddities and also Harry men in caves marlon a couple couple more on the the oddities I was most mm-hmm. struck by. Two of the stories that that were very dark and creepy, and the one, uh, what do you recall about the prison cell, the suicide cell in Mount Carmel? Is that another urban legend, or is that, yeah, you know, did you research about that was, that uh, pretty much true?
1: Well, that was an urban legend that really wasn't much of a legend. Nobody knew about it. when I found out about it. Through um, I was researching a different story, and I came across an old news story about a suicide that happened in a jail in Mount Carmel. And I asked some of my local friends who still live there and nobody seemed to know anything about it. And I did some research and research, and I found that in this tiny one cell jail, an oddly high number of suicides took place. I think five or six individuals hung themselves for minor crimes. I mean, they weren't awaiting trial for, for murder or anything these were just garden variety small crimes they probably would have gotten a slap on the wrist a small fine nothing major yet for some reason for some dark reason they couldn't spend a day in that jail cell without wanting to take their own lives and the building that it still stands today and it's actually a gift shop and a very nice gift shop um very quaint and colorful and you know a, a very nice business and I actually reached out to the owner of the building and the woman who owns the gift shop and asked if she knew of the history. She said she knew that it was the jail at one time, but she never knew there was anything that dark or sinister that that happened in that building. But she did say there are parts of that of the building, especially in the lower floor in the basement, where it, you do get a pretty creepy feeling when you go down there. And, and she said, well, that seems to make sense because um there she wouldn't go as far as to say that it was haunted but she did say that you there are parts of that building where you get a uneasy feeling
0: it didn't look like a very large building so there must only be a few cells
1: on the bottom it was a, a, a very very small small building and um from what i can ascertain from the from the research I've performed, the, the holding cell, it was just one cell and it was down in the basement and it was um, and the building's still standing today and it it's um, if you drive by, you would never in a million years guess that it was a jail because Mount Carmel was, you know, even at its heyday, it wasn't a super large city and you know, it was just a, a, a freestanding building that looks unremarkable from the outside yet down in the bowels of the building some pretty ghastly events happened
0: yeah now down in that basement is that cell still there or is the door removed and it's just used for storage or just open space or what does it look like today? Were oh, yeah, you we able to get down there?
1: No I haven't been able to go down there although you know, I was extended an invitation to check it out but I never got around to to checking it out and part of me doesn't want to because there's obviously something dark about it because, um, I mean, right. in any, in any jail or prison, I mean, deaths and suicide, they, they aren't in terribly infrequent, but in this particular jail, it, you know, suicides happened with frightening regularity. So there was something about that building because these individuals did not stand to be put away for, for a long time in, 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 in prison so you know it boggles the mind that somebody who was just yeah. you know arrested for public drunkenness decided to you know hang themselves for apparently no reason wow creepy
0: the the other yeah. one that really struck me was the murder march and i, I believe that's out near pittsburgh then uh, mm-hmm. yeah, in the that, railroad yeah. and and a spot where lots of bodies were found many of them missing heads um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what can you tell us about that that you can recall
1: well at the time newcastle was a railroad hub i mean you're not too far from pittsburgh and cleveland and and you know almost like a gateway to the to the cities of the midwest from a railroad perspective and this area outside of town was built on a, a very swampy marshy area which just had the right geography to dispose of of bodies and um i would imagine that you know if you were in a line of work where you need to to dispose a body that would be the ideal place to do it and apparently a lot of people have had that idea because um no less than a dozen bodies have been pulled out of this marsh which today has been filled up so the marsh itself doesn't I mean, it doesn't exist anymore, um, but during the time, it was just a, a terrible, uh, mosquito-filled, muddy bog that people didn't really want to go near, and it just made it an ideal place to dispose of, of, of um, murder victims.
0: Do you think they were tossed off a train, or do you think somebody would just come out there through some other path? And,
1: uh, well, yeah. well, being that most of these bodies were never identified, it seems to suggest that they were there for a long time. Of course, putting a body in a wet environment with all that organic matter it does hasten the decomposition process. But remarkably, there were several other um, serial killers in, you know, in New York and Chicago and, and Cleveland at the time, where most of these bodies were discovered. So there, there may have been a possibility that these bodies were brought in from other places or from organized crime and and gangs from other cities. And they just used the marsh at Newcastle as the place to, to dump the bodies. Yes. What a
0: fascinating compilation. And we've been talking about Pennsylvania oddities, 27 very strange stories, unsolved mysteries, strange places and people. Uh, oddball crimes, all of this detailed in Marlon Bressy's book. Marlon, you also uh, recently, we published another book for you. It was actually the first one that we did together, Harry Men and Caves. We have about five minutes left. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, it looks mm-hmm. like a compilation of maybe 50 or 60 stories about real hermits Maybe you could yep. tell us a little bit about, you know, how you uncovered this information and what was a hermit to you. How would you have defined a hermit?
1: Yes, actually I believe there's eighty different stories in that book. Hermits from virtually every state in the United States. And it was I'm particularly proud of that book because hermits didn't leave a lot of material laying around. They weren't the most sociable people, so you know, to find enough information to write the life story, the biography of one hermit is hard enough to do 80 different hermits. That took a lot of research. And, um, and um, you know, I, I grew up, in, like I said, in a Coleridgeman cult mine, and there was an old man who actually lived back in the woods who was still alive when I was born. And he was actually the motivation behind that book. I was always fascinated by this this hermit who lived back in the woods. And um, that's how the book got started.
0: Wow. 80. Well, I I wasn't counting. I saw a pretty long list. And they range from, it looks like Pennsylvania to California to Texas, so all over the country, even Michigan. So we got, yeah, all four corners of uh, the continental U.S. Is there one that mm-hmm. really stood out, a couple that really stood out maybe that just oddball stories about hermit.
1: Well, each one is is remarkable in her own way. Um, of course, in Pennsylvania, we have um, a lot of hermit stories, and um, the one that really struck out to me was the um, um, what they call the Hermit of Blue Hill in in Sunbury, as you know, up by the Shikalemi Overlook. That is where these, this hermit used to live, and of course, when you drive through that area, you always see the overlook outside of Sunbury, and, and um, you know, that was the hermit that really spoke to me just because as a child, as a kid, my parents were always taking me up to this overlook, and little did I know back then, I was standing on the ground where a hermit once once lived.
0: So these hermits, they're, obviously, they, they just don't want to live with others. Uh, did they tend to be maybe was there any indication that they were perhaps mentally ill or were they just poor impoverished people? Were they just introverts or was it kind of like all of the above?
1: It is mostly all of the above. A lot of them, uh, a lot of them were, were um, jilted by their lovers. You know, a lot of people who have, you know, they were, they suffered some sort of heartbreak and they just wanted to retreat from society Um, I would imagine a lot of them probably would have had, you know, if they had been alive today, they would have been diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. They certainly fit a certain pattern of behavior and it doesn't matter from what time period. Some of the hermits I wrote about go back to the 1700s, some of them up to the 1950s and from every state and from every corner of the country, they do share the same characteristics. And these characteristics, I think some people would look at today and, and conclude that it it was a form of mental illness that many of these individuals suffered.
0: Now, when looking at these these hermits and all these different stories, besides the fact that they they just wanted to be alone, which, of course, makes them a hermit, that's a common thread uh, eschewing society. But would you say, um, what what about from their uh, behavior? Was there any tendency towards being criminal or running from the law? or were they mostly just peaceful people that wanted to be left alone?
1: Yeah, a handful of them entered the life of solitude just because they were fleeing from, from a crime or fear of a crime. Some of them were, or I believe innocent, but they were pariahs in their village. They had a bad reputation. They were just run out of town. And, um, some of them hermits. some of them had the life of a hermit thrust upon them. So, um, You know, there are a lot of situations that cause somebody to to choose that lifestyle, some voluntarily, some involuntarily. Yes, a
0: very, very interesting compilation. I don't think anybody's ever put together a book on 80 different hermit stories, and I know that's why we signed it. Uh, I don't think you have a lot of competition there, at least not that I've seen.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A very strange topic to write about. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Marlon, two very interesting books. Uh, that are out here again Pennsylvania oddities and hairy men in caves but both are available wherever books are sold what are you working on now we just have a minute to go tell us about what you're researching and writing now
1: well I'm compiling enough um, new stories for hopefully I'd like to get a volume two of Pennsylvania oddities and for the readers I'm not sure they're aware but the this book was actually based on my blog, which I maintain, and that's so far, I'm up to 600 different stories of the bazaar from around Pennsylvania, from literally every single county in Pennsylvania. So, since the time the book has been written, I have uncovered hundreds of additional stories, so I'd like to actually see a volume two, and hopefully a volume three or a volume four, somewhere down the line. I'd really like to make this my, my career, because for me there's nothing more entertaining than than researching unsolved murders and haunted places and, and perplexing mysteries. So.
0: Well there you, there you have it. Marlon Bressy, thank you for joining us today, the author of Pennsylvania Oddities, hopefully not just volume one, but many more to come.